0: Hello, you've tuned in to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. I'm Karen Serrano, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to the UC Berkeley graduate students about their work on campus and around the world today. I'm joined by Nina Marin from the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology. Welcome to the show, Nina. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. How have you been doing? Oh, you know. <laughs> Uh, apocalypse suggested. I think that things are going pretty well.
1: Nice. Yeah,
0: I think we're all feeling the same way. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do on campus? Yeah, so I am a uh, relatively new PhD student in the Krishna
1: Niyogi lab in the plant and microbiology department, and I study photo protection in plants, which is how plants respond to stress from high light when there's too much light in the environment and they can't use it all to perform photosynthesis. And they want to avoid the generation of uh, reactive oxygen species, which are basically molecules that are created from radicalized oxygen, um, which is kind of a byproduct of photosynthesis if plants are unable to have mechanisms to protect
0: themselves. That sounds super interesting. For people who aren't plant people like us, I thought light was required for photosynthesis. Why is too much light bad for plants? Right. So uh, light is required
1: for photosynthesis. um, But plants can only cope with so much. So there are only so many um, photosystems, which are the molecular protein complexes that process uh, photons of light. There are only so many in a leaf, for example, and they can only uh, perform at a certain density and at a certain rate. And in kind of the middle of the day at high noon, that's almost twice as much light as the plants can process. And what happens to the light when they're absorbed by a leaf is that they get um, absorbed by these chlorophyll molecules, which people should generally be familiar with. Chlorophyll is a pretty famous uh, pigment molecule and when the light is absorbed, their electrons get excited. And if there's no uh, photosystems available to process that light, which is what happens in the middle of the day when there's too much light around, um, that energy from that electron will end up going to mo- uh, molecular oxygen, which is present because it's a byproduct of photosynthesis. And um, as a result, that can start shredding apart the proteins in um, the chloroplast and in the leaf itself. And so in order to prevent that from happening, they have to have another way to redirect all that extra energy.
0: Cool. So it sounds like they just get really overwhelmed with all the energy they're taking in and they have to kind of shuttle it other places. So they don't shuttle it to those bad oxygen species. That's super cool. How are you studying that? So uh,
1: (laughs) I actually study the natural variation of this process. So what I've looked at are a bunch of wild species at the University of California Botanical Gardens. And I'm looking for plants that are abnormally good at doing this and better at doing it than the crop species that we grow for food are, um, so that we can kind of understand how those mechanisms work in the wild, um, especially in plants that are adapted to environments with really high fluctuations in light, where there's uh, lots of shade, but then also um, a lot of kind of... Uh, excessive sunlight as well like dense forest canopies and rocky deserts Um, and I study kind of the natural variation of these um, photoprotective mechanisms in wild species.
0: So how can you tell which plants are good at it and which plants aren't good at it? Uh, Through this really fancy measurement system um,
1: called fluorometry. So uh, what happens when So after that chlorophyll pigment absorbs a photon of light and its electrons get excited, there are a few different places it can go. So it can either go um, to perform photosynthesis, uh, which is what it normally does when there's not too much excess light, um, or it can go to, um, or it can be released back into the environment as light again, and that's fluorescence. So all pigment molecules pretty much uh, fluoresce. So chlorophyll is a fluorescent molecule, So uh, when it absorbs that uh, photon of light, it can either use it for photochemistry, which is what we call photosynthesis, or it can be released back into the environment as light again, and that's what we'd call fluorescence. So like, um, fireflies also have molecules that fluoresce um, and you can measure how much fluorescence is, um, like fluorescence is uh, correlated to how much pho- photochemistry is happening. And so when the fluorescence goes down, this is actually a sign that the plant is beginning to perform photoprotection instead of photosynthesis. And we can use that by using a fluorometer.
0: Oh, I see. So the more fluorescence you measure, the worse the plant is at photochemistry then? No, it's the opposite. So oh. um, yeah, so fluorescence is correlated with
1: photochemistry. So um, the more fluorescence there is, the more likely the rest of the energy is being used for um, photosynthesis. But when the fluorescence goes down, um, that means the plant is performing photoprotection, and it's very, very efficiently funneling that light to other, um, funneling that light energy
0: to other molecules. Oh, I see. So do you like just go to the botanical gardens and measure the plant's fluorescence? Is that how you take your data? So uh, that's one way of doing it, but I wanted to measure almost
1: 100 plants in the first oh, thing wow. that I did. Yeah, so uh, I did a survey of 100 species, and what I did was I took a bunch of their leaves, which I got special permission from the garden to do, um, and I brought them back to the lab, and I did the measurements there.
0: Oh, I see. It must be nice going to the botanical gardens for your research.
1: Very lovely. I'm, I feel like I'm good friends with
0: the curators there now. Nice. That's so fun. Yeah. So what is um, your hope for your research outcomes? So do you think that you'll be able to find or use this like natural variation to maybe engineer plants with better, vari- or better um, photosynthesis? Yeah, so in my first screen, I actually found a
1: really interesting group of plants that are all um, fern species and most of which are xerophytic. So they're adapted to kind of rocky deserts in the Southwestern United States. Um, And these were incredibly efficient at turning on and off photo protection. So when there's too much highlight, they immediately perform enormous amounts of photo protection way higher than both of the model organisms. Um, Nicotiana benthamiana, which is a tobacco species and Arabidopsis, which is kind of this model weed. Um, they perform way better photochemistry or photo protection than those species. And they're able to turn it off much more quickly when the light um, goes back down to a low level where they can start performing photochemistry again. And so we suspect that they're able to kind of optimize um, their photosynthesis and photo protection for whatever the light regime is. And we are hoping to be able to, Kind of understand what that mechanism is and then put it into crops to improve um
0: biomass yield help wow, people that's super cool um do you have any like hypotheses to why ferns might have been better at that yeah
1: so uh ferns are a really interesting group of plants they diverged very early in the land plant lineage so they're very um far removed evolutionarily from angiosperms, which are most of what we eat. Um, those are the flowering plants. And, um, you know, angiosperms really didn't evolve to optimize protection because their biomass yield is not directly correlated to how good they are at reproducing because they produce fruit and flowers. But ferns actually reproduce by forming spores on the backs of their leaves. And so their leaves are their reproductive organs. And so um, being able to optimize this photo protection photochemistry mechanism um, might be more useful for ferns because optimizing their biomass and growing bigger and better leaves actually increases their fec- fecundity or their reproductive success. Um, so that's kind of my pet hypothesis for why they might be better at it.
0: Yeah, I was kind of thinking like since ferns evolved earlier than um yeah gymnosperms and angiosperms that they maybe have had to deal with like harsher environmental conditions than those um, and so they would like have different mechanisms to adapt to those conditions prior to the rest of the land plants yeah i mean that's definitely one
1: reason so a lot of ferns grow in forest understories and the ones that i've been looking at primarily actually have adapted away from growing in forests and into rocky deserts, um, And so my hypothesis is that they first adapted to optimizing photosynthesis in low light, and then they moved to being able to do high capacity photo protection in high light. Um, and one of the other fun things about these species is that they perform phototrophism. So in high light, um, when they're not being clamped to a fancy lab machine, like a fluorometer, um, they curl their leaves. And so they kind of do this self shading. Um, and I think that that's one of the other reasons why the rate of transitioning from photosynthesis to photo protection and back is really high because as soon as there's too much light the photosystems to take. They perform self-shading so that they can still absorb a lot of light from the environment, but it's not an excess.
0: Oh, wow. To so
1: optimize that transition.
0: Um, so what would it entail for you to kind of steal this photosynthesis mechanisms from ferns and place them into crop plants?
1: So the project that I'm planning for my dissertation is um, to look at their light harvesting complexes so this is the part of the photosystem that holds a lot of the chlorophyll that captures light from the environment and um, redirects it to the um, photosynthesis reaction center. And this is the site of that protective mechanism because you have to stop the excess energy from getting into the reaction center where the molecular oxygen is. And so... My project is to look at the genes of the light harvesting complexes in these plants and see how they may be structurally different um, to be able to redirect that energy to other molecules that bind to um, these light harvesting complexes.
0: I see. So you're focusing on like one really specific part of the chain, basically. Uh, well, I'm focusing on the site of photo protection
1: in the photosystem.
0: I see. Hi, just a reminder that you've tuned in to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. I'm Karen Serrano, and I've been speaking to Nina Marin from the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology, and she's been talking about her work in photosynthesis. So Nina, have you always been interested in plant molecular biology or what did you do prior to your time at Berkeley? No, I was not a plant biologist (laughs) before I started my PhD.
1: Um, in undergrad, I worked in very basic, um, genetics and molecular biology. So I studied, um, I studied sex determination in C. elegans, um, which is a model worm. And it's super common for, um, kind of studying how, uh, genes are regulated and how genomes function, um, because they have very small, well characterized genome. And then um, when I graduated, I worked for two years as a microbiologist in a lab at New York University. And I studied kind of biophysics and also um, the formation of uh, spores in the bacteria, Bacillus subtilis. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to work on something that had possible implications for climate science. And I thought that you know, doing a PhD is a really big commitment, and it's a very long time, and there's not necessarily the biggest payoff um, at the end in terms of money or fame, so I wanted to work on something that I felt had a moral resonance, and I think that working on a project where I get to do basic biology, and I get to learn a lot about kind of the molecular mechanisms of a really interesting system but meanwhile hopefully down the line that will help to actually make people's lives better and help improve crop yield in places where climate change will be like really affecting how much food people can produce for
0: their communities
1: down the line
0: right yeah i think definitely now more than ever um climate change has been on our minds so it seems like you just wanted to go into maybe like a more applied field of study
1: yeah i think specifically i yeah i was interested in something that um would have kind of an environmental environmental impact um what made you decide to
0: study photosynthesis in particular
1: uh, so I didn't plan to be a photosynthesis researcher. Um, but I was interested in the lab when I was doing rotations in my first year, because a lot of the people in the lab seemed really happy. And it seemed, um, you know, professional and well funded. And uh, when I got in, I got this like really big kind of fish expedition of a project to do this survey at the Botanical Garden, and I ended up finding something really interesting, and I felt very uh, dedicated to kind of solving the problem that I discovered.
0: I see. So it wasn't it wasn't planned at all. It was just something nope. you found <laughs> really interesting when you encountered. Yeah, Did you, were you I always, fell into it. Um, were you always interested in science, or were you ever interested in anything besides science?
1: Ever since high school, I was definitely interested in science. I, uh, I always felt that, at least in my science classes, I had enough questions where we reached the end of our knowledge that we could get from the textbooks, and I think I always had a very um, research-oriented personality, um, but it was not the only thing I ever wanted to do. I've always really enjoyed Writing and performing, and I can seriously consider a career in stand-up comedy, which I'm deeply glad I did not pursue <laughs> um, at this point in time. But yeah,
0: I've, I've um, I definitely considered other things besides comedy. So part. you said you considered a career in stand-up comedy. Do you ever do that in your free time still? Uh, not anymore, but I did. I did it before time. I guess now you can't really maybe there's like a zoom comedy show i <laughs> don't know how funny that would be
1: brutal
0: <laughs> that would be so brutal <laughs> yeah but you also mentioned or you mentioned writing how do you kind of incorporate writing into your life now
1: uh so i do write fiction in my spare time um i like to write some kind of funny short stories but Science itself has a lot of writing involved. I'm writing my thesis proposal right now, and <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that I love about science, is that it's so interdisciplinary. And on a given day, there are so many different things you could be doing. You could be planning an experiment, doing lab work, writing, presenting, um, and it kind of has
0: it all. Yeah, I would definitely say As a fellow PhD student, there's definitely more writing than you ever expect there to be in start in STEM fields. And so you also mentioned that you were really research oriented. Did you have undergrad experience in research or what kind of opportunities did you have there? Yeah, so the work I did in C. Elegance, I did from my sophomore
1: to my senior year in undergrad um, at New York University. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I worked as a laboratory technician for two
0: years before um, I came to grad school. Nice, so you got get a feel for what research is like before um, you considered grad school, and then you said you worked for two years after your undergrad, right? Yeah. Did you ever consider going straight from your undergrad to your PhD, or did you need that kind of buffering time? I did consider it, but I think that the concern that I
1: had was, I felt that I didn't have the confidence to break out of my comfort zone in undergrad. And I think that I would have ended up applying to something that was very similar to what I had already been doing, because uh, it was what I felt confident in, it was what I felt comfortable with. And I knew that if I was going to spend five, to seven years working on something, I wanted it to be more thought out than just what I felt comfortable with and so taking two years to go into a different field and start over and start over with a little bit more experience I think prepared me better um, and gave me more time to go to talks and go to seminars and do more reading and figure out what kind of project I really wanted to do for my
0: PhD. Nice yeah so you mentioned that you're writing your thesis dissertation right now or your thesis project. How is that going?
1: I think it's going well.
0: Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll find gotten, out soon, huh?
1: I guess we'll find out <laughs> if I become a PhD candidate in two and a half weeks. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think it's going well. I've gotten some good feedback from um, my postdoc
0: and from some professors that I've been working with. Nice. What do you think you'd like to do after you graduate? The world's scariest question, Karen. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I don't have to have a real answer. I mean,
1: I, I think honest, don't
0: have real answers to this question.
1: Sure. I mean, I think my honest answer is that I'm trying not to make too many decisions for future me. <laughs> a year ago, I would not have predicted anything about my life as it currently is. But I think that I I don't have any answers.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I, I mean, typically, grad students are usually stuck between staying in academia and then uh, moving into the private research sector. Do you have any kind of preferences at the moment?
1: Uh, I really don't. Because I think that, I mean, my understanding of academia and my experience with it is that it can be really wonderful and fulfilling but there are not very many spots um for professor professorship at the highest level and it it takes a lot of luck to get there and i think that if i get that luck and i get um postdocs and opportunities that i'm excited about uh i would absolutely pursue that but Barring that, I think that I would probably pivot into a career that is more writing and communication oriented um, rather than just doing bench work at an industry level.
0: Yeah. So you're a little interested in more science communication right now. Yeah. Cool. Have you had a chance to try out teaching yet? Not yet. Not yet.
1: Uh, I'm planning to teach next year.
0: Oh, cool. Um, do you know what you'll be teaching?
1: No. Next <laughs> no. academic year,
0: so I'm not sure what's on the Oh, yet. okay. Yeah. Mina, <laughs> what do you do on campus besides research?
1: The main thing that I've been working on on campus is um, the Graduate Student Union. I'm a steward for uh, our department in the Graduate Student Union, and so I act as a representative of my fellow graduate students in how we collectively bargain with the university to make sure we are paid enough
0: to live and we have rights. That's definitely important. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for your work. You're welcome. Are there any are there any like clubs or organizations you're also a part of? Or is the union your main sort of focus right now?
1: Union is my main focus. Um, in my spare time, I used to also do swing dancing occasionally on campus. There was a Lindy Hop um, oh, that's kind so of fun. club on Saturdays, which was so much fun. But alas, so many of my hobbies were social, so <laughs> they've been rendered illegal.
0: <laughs> Are you still in Berkeley this semester, or have you decided to go home?
1: I am still in Berkeley.
0: Uh, currently live in Oakland. I wonder if I wonder if they'll approve any sort of like outdoor activity soon, such as like the swing dancing, because I feel like that could be done outdoors. And I think I have in fact seen people do it like on, like in the main little square, like next to the other gate. Yeah, but it does require touching strangers.
1: Which I don't think oh, that they're gonna right. allow. You need,
0: like a partner to dance, don't you? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I guess you could do like the middle school, like six feet apart. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's even farther than they made you do a middle
1: school.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I think we're all struggling with um, lost hobbies. Now that you are studying plants, what's your favorite plant?
1: Ooh, that's a good
0: question. So I'm gonna say that it's one of the ferns
1: that I study. One of the plants that I study is a maidenhair fern called adianum radianum, and you can buy it as a house plant. And they are absolutely beautiful. Um, they have very like tiny and delicate leaves that are this like very vivid, bright shade of light green. Uh, and I highly recommend it as a lovely addition to your home. Do you have one in your house? I do not have one in my house, but I and am going to probably grow them in the greenhouse soon at, yeah. at school and I will steal some.
0: Yeah, utilize them space. I imagine ferns are like a little bit hard to take care of because they require a lot of water, right? I think it depends on the
1: species, but yeah, this one probably requires quite a bit of water.
0: I'm glad you had a real answer to that, because every time someone asks me, and for the audience, I also am a plant biologist, um, so people often ask me what my favorite plant is, and I always blank on every single plant I know when that that question is asked, so I'm glad you had one. Nina, we end the show with usually asking our interviewees what they'd like to leave the audience with. Do you have anything you'd like to leave the audience with?
1: Yes, so I like to listen to podcasts when I'm working in the lab on something a bit tedious and my number one recommendation for podcast listening for the scientifically minded is the podcast zero percent scared and it is a podcast where a a I think she's a viral biologist and a person who believes in the paranormal who are best friends argue about paranormal topics Wait, and the scientist, <laughs> it's awesome. So the scientist, um, like breaks down why the logic of the paranormal thing makes no sense, but occasionally she says, This is plausible and <laughs> it's real
0: fun. It's real fun. Wait, I might actually have to start listening to that. I love, I want, or I listen to, I listen to a lot of crime podcasts when I work, but I've recently started listening to one called Two Girls, One Ghost. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. And it's like just two best friends and they talk about like paranormal experiences, but I would love to hear like a scientific, like like a debate between, yeah, a believer and a scientist. It's
1: fun I think because she's genuinely aggressive about it. Like she's like, No, this doesn't make any sense. Astrology isn't real. No <laughs> offense to the astrology believers out there in the audience. But it's it's great. It's really fun.
0: Sorry, I'm really interested. Is this is oh, it please. like are they like reviewing cases that have happened to other people or is it like their own experiences or so it's like topic by topic so there's one episode about mermaids and the paranormal oh, so believer like, co-host sorry um so it's not like this is a ghost story do you think this is real it's like our mermaid no it, right it, and so the fun
1: is the, okay so this is a great episode because the paranormal believer is like I've seen a mermaid and she was like you definitely did not see a mermaid you saw something else, and then she goes through like the history of like mermaid debunkings, and she brings in like scientific papers, and she's like, "Here's why mermaids can't exist because
0: of evolution," <laughs> and it's great. I love that. That's a great recommendation. All right, then we're coming to the end of our time here, so thank you so much again, Nina. It's been great to have you on here, and tune in next week for the next episode of The Graduates. Thank you so much.